Tonight I want us to consider the death of our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what's known as the Passion Week. And we probably think of passion differently than the way the word is meant to be used considering this last week of the life of Jesus. Our understanding of the word passion today speaks of um, our emotion, a desire, a strong desire. Some might even say a lustfulness, um, although it doesn't have to be a negative uh, connotation when we speak about our passions. We can't have good passions, but that's not what this word is about when we talk about this final week of the life of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior. The word passion speaks to his suffering. And the scriptures talk much about the suffering of Christ, the suffering of the Messiah, which is the Hebrew understanding of that word Messiah or Christ, Christ being the Greek-rooted word there. But they mean the same thing, the anointed one who is to come. And he had been prophesied for thousands of years from the very beginning, in fact, all the way back to the beginning of creation when Adam and Eve were in the garden and they were in a perfect setting, a perfect environment. Uh, Eve was tempted by Satan who had um, fallen into sin himself, that sin being pride. And um, he is cast out of the domain of heaven. He still has access to God. We know that. And that will continue until such a time as the tribulation, near the end of the tribulation when he's finally cast out. But uh, he is still now in that role of the accuser of the brethren. So he still has access to Father God, and he is able to accuse us night and day before the Father. But at this particular point in the history of humanity in the garden, Eve was tempted by Satan, who was known as the serpent. Uh, she gives in to that temptation. It says that Adam's with her. He willfully chooses to eat of that forbidden fruit. And they realize that they are in sin. They realize that they were naked. Uh, they had fallen from that pure grace that they had been um, living in for some amount of time. We don't know how long. The Bible doesn't tell us. But they had been in this pure existence with God until sin entered into humanity. But it's from that very moment, uh, shortly thereafter at least, where God calls for the man, for the woman. He even brings uh, the serpent before him and he pronounces judgment upon all parties. Uh, and in that text, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 and following, we see that the, it's, it's known as, uh, I think, the, the proto-evangelion. It's the, it's the beginning of the gospel message there and it's the forerunner. In fact, it's the first prophecy, I think, about the Messiah. It tells us that um, he will, in fact, I'm going to just, before we even get started, let's just turn there. In Genesis 3.15, just too good to summarize, the scripture says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's talking to the serpent here. Verse 14 tells us that. I'll put enmity or war between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the hill. This would be that first messianic prophecy. He goes on then to, to pronounce judgment against the woman and the pain with childbirth and against the man and labor and toil that shall be his way of life thereafter. But here we see that promise that the seed of the woman will defeat the seed of the serpent. Now, that's some unusual language, and we don't have time to go through all of this, but the seed is not a womanly uh, descriptor, if you will. The seed is a description from a man. And so this would be then uh, a hint, a foreshadowing of that, that uh, virgin birth of the Messiah. And so we see all the way back from the beginning of the fall uh, that God had already provided a way. In fact, we know from Ephesians chapter 1 and 1 Peter chapter 1 
that before he created the world to begin with, God had already provided a way through Jesus the Messiah. Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. So before there was a world, it was already appointed that Christ would die. And so thank God for that, amen. And so this week is a week that we have in the Christian church set aside to remember, beginning at Palm Sunday this past Sunday, all the way to this coming Sunday, Easter Sunday or Resurrection Sunday, uh, we recognize the, the final week of Christ, who was, again, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world the lamb who was slain for our sins. And so I want us to consider the death of Christ tonight. I want us to consider deeply all that uh, our our great God and Savior has done to accomplish salvation for us. And we won't talk tonight about necessarily the brutality of his suffering, the brutality of crucifixion and all of the horrors that he specifically endured. I want us to look at a number of of categories here and, and look at what was accomplished, if you will, in the death of Christ. And so I don't think this is anything we've ever entertained, at least in this format together. These, these uh, headings, we've looked at all of these headings as we've made our way through Scripture uh, in some of the different book studies. In the book of Ephesians, even our study of Colossians, we've talked about this. Um, several years ago, Brian uh, Armstreet preached through uh, the beginning chapters of First Peter. Uh, he would have brought us through a few of these points as well. Uh, but I want us to look at them together tonight. And so uh, we're going to be turning to a few different portions of Scripture, and we'll make our way through as many of these as we can. And the ones we don't cover tonight, I'll just give you the blanks, and you can study them in more detail for yourself later on. Sound like a plan? All right. Well, let's look tonight at Romans chapter 5, verse 17. Romans chapter 5. We'll be in Romans predominantly tonight, but we will look in uh, a number of other passages as well. My favorite thing, as you know, is to just start at a book and make our way through but from time to time, and, and several times here lately, we have been looking at more doctrinal kind of issues, and tonight would fall under that heading as well. So we're, we're looking at the death of Christ and seeing what all was accomplished. And so to do that, we are going to look broadly at a number of different passages. But the idea here about the death of Christ, we would see the need for this death so that righteousness could be perfected. That is number one, if you're following along in that outline tonight. Righteousness had to be perfected. Romans 5.17 tells us why. It says, For if by the transgression of the one death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Righteousness had to be perfected. God's holiness, God's justness demands righteousness. And we in and of ourselves just aren't righteous. We try to do righteous things, and many, in fact, every other world religion, I would say, except for biblical Christianity, hinges upon the works of righteousness that come from ourselves, and they fall short. We know that as Christians, amen, they fall short, and you see it in Buddhism, trying to become one with nothing, this great emptiness, and trying to attain um, oneness with all of nature, and, and, and still, as, as, as peaceful as that may sound, and as, as passive as it may sound, there is nothing passive or peaceful about it. It is all about that person trying to do something to empty him or herself of everything, and become one with everything. It's just, it's, it's absolutely ludicrous when you, when you consider it uh, at face value, but but Buddhism is, is that way. Um, Mormonism is similarly. It's works-based. Now, Mormonism is not about emptying yourself. Mormonism is about adding to yourself 
works of righteousness, works that you would have to accomplish. And so you see that uh, from early ages, these young adults are sent. It used to be just the men. Um, But there has, in the last decade or so, there have been so many young men who have been abandoning Mormonism because good godly Christians have been witnessing to them as they come to their door. What a great opportunity to tell the gospel to people, amen? They've been challenging them to look up Bible verses and and giving them literature and websites to go to. And and I've read story after story of these young men who who have been repenting and leaving Mormonism and giving their life to Jesus Christ because they come to realize that there's nothing good in them that would warrant their saving. So now Mormon missionaries are not just male, young males. There are also young women now who are doing this. Any of you had any of the young lady uh, missionaries come to your door? Yeah, I've seen some of my mother-in-law's old place uh, was approached by some. And uh, uh, very interesting, very interesting turn turn of events there. But they've also uh, um, uh, ruled that these young folks aren't to have their cell phones with them in the evenings when they're in their places of stay. They don't want them to have access to the truth. It's very sad. Because their whole system of religion is predicated upon works, upon earning their salvation. And they have to jump through certain hoops in order to do that. And the reality is that every religion is that way except for biblical Christianity. All religions in the world are summarized by two letters, D-O, for do. There's stuff you have to do. Christianity is four letters. It's done. It's been done for us. And that may be a little simplistic, but it's the truth. It's the truth. Jesus has done everything needed for salvation. Amen? And that's what we see here in this passage. Turn to Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 9. This is a lengthy passage. We'll read all the way down through verse 26. But righteousness had to be perfected, and it could not be perfected from us, from within ourselves. So Paul writes, what then? Verse 9, Romans 3. Are we any better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, and here is the indictment against all flesh, against all humanity. There is none who understands, there is none who seeks God, which is, this is what convicted me in part of uh, the futility of doing a seeker-sensitive type church years ago. There is no one who seeks after God. There are people who seek religion, there are people who seek to feel better about themselves, but there are none, according to the scripture, that seek God. God's the seeker. He's the hound that comes after um, the lost. But he says, there's none righteous, not one. There's none who understands, none who seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they've become useless. There is none who does good. There's not even one. Their throat is an open grave. Their tongues keep deceiving. The poison of asp is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's a pretty sad indictment of humanity, is it not? This is the condition of all of us apart from Christ. Verse 19 continues. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The point of the law, the argument Paul makes in this Roman epistle, this letter to the Romans, the church, the Christians in Rome, he's telling them that the law points to our, our, our inability to save ourselves. The law demonstrates our sinfulness, but the law in and of itself cannot save. That's why we do not want to be tied to the yoke of the law any longer because the law is impotent to save us. We need a righteousness from outside of ourselves. That's why Christ is the fulfillment of the law. He doesn't do away with the law, but he alone is able to perfectly keep the law, and he does so. And we'll see more about that here in a few moments. And it goes on to say in verse 21, 
Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifest. Prophets, the law and the prophets would speak to the Old Testament, to the, to the books of the Old Testament. The, the, um, the Jews would understand this, the law of the prophets. They would maybe the writings and the prophets or the law and the writings. You'll see several different descriptors, but the writings would be the poetry. And I think there is a place or two in the New Testament that identifies the wisdom literature as the poetry uh, under that heading. It may be different in some of the English translations, but all of these phrases speak to the Old Testament, to the, to the given known word at that time. So apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifest, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift, that's important, by His grace, also important. And here's the key for us tonight. Through the redemption which is in each and every human being. Is that what it says? Absolutely not. It's through the redemption that is in who? Christ Jesus. So again, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. So he's got this perfect standard that we cannot reach, we cannot attain to. And it doesn't matter if you're short like me, humanly speaking, right? Or if you're taller like, um, oh, like Mr. Martin over here, right? You're taller like him or some of you other folks, okay? Uh, Actually, compared to me, you're all tall. (laughs) But it doesn't matter how tall we are, humanly speaking, none of our good works, none of our righteous acts in and of ourselves can reach the level that God has set for us. He just can't do it. Um, When I was in uh, fourth grade, there was a high jump competition. And myself and the tallest guy in the class, Chris Lee may remember, his name was Ty Tywater. Hello, Ty Tywater, if you ever see this. But he and I were tied for first place in the high jump, high jump in fourth grade. Now, I was tiny, but I was springy. I was like Tigger, or whatever, okay? I don't, I don't know where that came from, sorry. But, but I, I was more springy back then. Now, ultimately, I gave way, and, uh, and, and what brought me down, the great downfall of my high jump career, and that was it. That was the end of my high jump career. Never tried again after that because my Fonzie comb was in my back pocket, and it caught on the bar. I'm getting red. I don't know why I'm telling you this story. I'm getting embarrassed. But my, you remember those, those big fat combs, kind of wavy shaped, right? Hey, you remember those days? Well, my comb hooked onto the bar and pulled it down under me. And so that was, that was it. Ty Tywater wins. Now, he would go on to grow like eight more feet after that. And so in high school, we were like, you know, David and Goliath from, from, from that day forward. But, but anyway, um, I had a point to that. What was the point? The standard, the bar was raised and, and we just can't meet that standard, that bar in and of ourselves. Doesn't matter how springy we are or how tall we may be, humanly speaking. That's a long way back around to that point. But I digress, nonetheless. So we needed a righteousness outside of ourselves. Horrible illustration. Morimoto, what was I thinking, right? What was I thinking? Morimoto, that means tidal wave. If I, is that right? Tidal wave, okay. Brock, that means tidal wave. But we need a righteousness outside of ourselves. And so we see verse 25, verse 25, this one, we're, 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 we're justified now as a gift by the grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. So propitiation means that he is the, the divine satisfaction for sin. He's the only one who's able to satisfy the justice of God where the love and the wrath, all of those things meet in God's justice. It's only through propitiation of Jesus. It goes on to say that this was to demonstrate his righteousness. So whose righteousness is it? Is it it ours? No, it's his. It's the righteousness of Jesus. 
This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he had passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And this goes on along with the passage we talked about this past Sunday in, um, in Romans chapter 5, at just the right time. At just the right time, Christ died. It was perfectly plotted, perfectly planned, perfectly orchestrated that Jesus would be the sacrifice for our sins. It's his righteousness. And so righteousness had to be perfected, and it was not going to be perfected in us. It had to come from Christ Jesus. Therefore, Jesus had to be the lamb that was slain. Secondly, divine justice had to be satisfied. We hinted at that just a moment ago. God's justness demands that it's satisfied. And it has to be just that. His justice must be satisfied. 1 Peter 2.24 tells us, He himself, meaning Christ himself, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you are healed. And therein he's quoting from the Old Testament. By his wounds were healed. This context speaks not of physical healing of our sicknesses, our, our, our bodily sicknesses, health and, and those sorts of, um, that sort of thing. What he's speaking to is our, our sin sickness. We're bound to sin. We're under the curse of sin and, and we're, we're destined to perish under the weight of sin. But by the wounds of Christ, the justice of God is satisfied and by his wounds we're healed of our sin disease. That's what Paul goes on to say in Romans 6.23. Romans 6, 23, Paul says that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift, there's that ideal again, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, if Eric gives me a gift, let's say Eric gives me a new iPad, he and Jill have done that before, They've, I'm not hinting for another one, it's just an illustration here, they've, they've given me an iPad Pro, one of the large ones in the past, and let's say they hand this thing to me, and they say, this gift is yours, free. Just give us $457. Now, see, that just doesn't square with the ideal of what a free gift is. Amen? Now, they did not do that. He did later, but Jill had nothing to do with it. Okay, nothing. No, he, he didn't do that. But a free gift is free. You don't earn it. You don't pay for it. There's nothing that, 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 that coincides with its freeness. There's no string attached. His justice had to be satisfied, and so what does God do? God meets the demand to satisfy in and of himself. Which brings us to the third point. In order to satisfy the justice of God, God stacked the deck against himself in eternity past, requiring that blood had to be spilled or blood had to be shed for the remission of sins. Now, if I was God and I'm thinking forward about how I'm going to save humanity, most of whom would never concede to my sovereignty, would never concede to my lordship, would never understand my love, and who would, who would turn and even curse me and my son and use his name in vain and all those sorts of things, use his name as a, as a uh, pejorative, right, and, and uh, as a curse or a slang, I would have a hard time thinking about giving my sons blood in order to pay for their sins. That's a God thing. That's not a human thing, amen? That would be very difficult to do. It's hard enough for us to consider sacrificing ourselves for people we actually care about and love and, and who love us back, right? But for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God to appoint his son to die and to shed his blood, 
in eternity past, knowing how humanity would be, that's a God kind of love. And so, God stacks the deck against himself. Hebrews 9, 22 tells us, According to the law, one may almost say, All things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. The writer of Hebrews, we're not naming them because we don't know for certain, all right? I have a couple good ideals I'll tell you about later, but the writer of Hebrews goes back deep into the Old Testament and looks. In fact, you can look all the way back to the garden when Adam and Eve sinned and they hid from God. They're trying to hide from God, but what they didn't know about God that we have the privilege of looking back and understanding is that God is the hide-and-seek champion. You can't hide from God. He can find you wherever you are. If He wants you, He will find you. Amen? He can find us in the, in the deepest pit of sin and despair and, and shine the light of salvation upon us. But the writer of Hebrews looks back to the garden. When Adam and Eve sin, God calls out, where are you? Not for his benefit because he knows where we are. He already knows the answer. He does it for our benefit. The only plausible response from Adam and Eve are, we're here exposed in our sinfulness. Of course, God knows that. And so what does God do? But God kills an animal and covers them with the skin of the animal. The implication, as we go on to see through Exodus and Leviticus, especially in the Levitical law, and then as we get further on into the Old Testament, the, the, um, the ideal behind that sacrifice is that something must die in order to cover sin. Now, it's not explicitly stated what animal was killed. Again, I have an opinion about that, but it's just that. It's an opinion. Personally, I think a lamb was slain, but I can't prove that, and nor would I fight upon that hill. But I think it fits the typology of the rest of the Old Testament picture. However, we can't be dogmatic. We just know that God killed an animal and used the skin in order to cover over the nakedness of Adam and Eve. Something had to die. That was the beginning. That was the beginning. And we see that there uh, an animal is slain for the covering of a man and a woman. Later on, you'll see that as we talked about this past Sunday, as we were partaking together of the Lord's Supper a lamb was slain to protect and to cover a whole household. You remember that? The blood was covering the door, and everyone inside was saved by the covering. And later we read in the, the code of the law that a lamb was slain once a year for the remission of sins for all of Israel. All of Israel. Now think about this for a second. All of Israel stood in waits for the sacrificial lamb to be slain. And there's a, there's a, a very detailed, we'll, we'll look more in depth at that another night, but there's a very, uh, a, uh, many details about the, the particulars of how this happens. There's the sacrificial lamb, there's a scapegoat, the blood would be sprinkled on the altar, the blood would also be poured upon the scapegoat, that scapegoat would be driven out into the wilderness to carry away the sins. It's a visible illustration of the fact that God removes our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. That's part of that idea that we see in the big picture of salvation. But all of that was pointing to the fact that under the law and the way God described in this point in history was that that blood would cover over the sins of the whole nation of Israel, but only for a year. It was only for a time. And it didn't remove the sin because we know from Hebrews that that blood of an animal was, was incapable of removing sin. All it did was cover it. That's why we read earlier in Romans that, that God overlooked their sin for a certain amount of time, but he was calling it to accounts. That's the ideal. That, that blood sacrifice only covered over sin for a certain amount of time. And so the writer of, of, of Hebrews goes back into the Old Testament to speak to this idea that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. Something must die. 
Blood has to be shed. 1 John 1, 7 tells us. We looked at this not too terribly long ago on our Sunday morning series we're going through. We'll get back to next Sunday after this coming Sunday. But we read in verse 7 of 1 John 1, If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. So what's John saying? We walk in the light as God is in the light. And earlier he had said that God is light. He had just made that proclamation. So if he's, he's, he is light. He's, he inhabits light. He's surrounded by pure light. And so if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. All sin covered by blood. So righteousness has to be perfected. That's why Christ died. Divine justice had to be satisfied. That's why Christ died. And blood had to be shed. That is why Christ died. All of this happens so that sin can be forgiven. That's number four. So that sin can be forgiven. Turn to Colossians chapter 2 if you have your Bibles. Colossians chapter 2, starting at verse 13. Give you just a moment. See some of you turning still. Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14, read as such. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. If memory serves, and my memory isn't as good as it used to be, Right? I need some alpha brain, Shane tells me, okay? But uh, um, if memory serves, look at verse 14. This phrase, having canceled out the certificate of debt, to telestai. This is the same words that are translated as finished in John chapter 19. To telestai. It is finished. Canceled out. It means the transaction is complete. Payment's been rendered. There's no more debt. It's done away with. The certificate of debt is, is done away with. Uh, we might say that, you know, the, the, the note's been torn up, right? The note's been torn up. You've got the title to the car. You've got the deed to the house or the property. It's done. The transaction's finished. That's what happened on the cross in chapter 2. So, righteousness must be perfected. Justice must be satisfied. Blood has to be shed so that sins will be forgiven. This is why Jesus goes to the cross, to take care of the transaction. He finalizes the transaction. Again, John 19, verse 30, if memory serves, he says it is finished. And he could have meant more things there, but at least he means the debt for sin is done. Payment's been made in full. This is why a works-based salvation is preposterous and ludicrous and I dare say it's even blasphemous when we, when we really think about it. To think that we can add to our salvation, that we can add to what Jesus has done on the cross when he himself said it's done, it's finished, payment made in full, that's prideful and arrogant and, and, and sinful to the, to the extreme. So next we see not only does Christ die so that sins will be forgiven, but ultimately so that redemption would be paid. Redemption must be paid. Again, this goes along with that idea of, of tetelestai, that payment in full that we just talked about. Ephesians 1, 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. So in Jesus, 
we have redemption through his blood. Remember this ideal of redemption speaks to, we talked about this a number of, 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 of Wednesday nights, as, and even in our first John studies, we've talked about the atonement and redemption and, and the different nuances therein and, and um, who Christ died for and those, those different things that, that Christians have debated for hundreds of years now. But, but the ideal of redemption speaks to the buying out of the slave market of sin. This is the idea that we're on the block. We're chained one to another and chained to our sin, um, you know, theoretically speaking here. We're standing there chained on display for all the world to see, and there's nothing about us that would warrant us being bought and, and redeemed out of that market. But here comes Christ. Here comes Christ, and he says, that one's mine. And that one's mine, and that one's mine, and that one's mine, and I'll take these here, and they're mine, and she's mine, and he's mine. This is what Christ does for us, and he redeems us. He buys us out of, the, 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 the Greek speaks there of, of ex agorazo, out of. He, he redeems us out of the slave market of sin. He doesn't just pay the price, but he pays the price and then draws us out of our sinful estate. So redemption had to be paid. And this is what Ephesians talks about here. He has done this through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. And you think for a moment, this idea, we talk a lot about the riches of his grace. We've come up with uh, um, 217, 18, I can't remember now, uh, different things that have happened at this great transaction when God has saved us. Um, he's forgiven us our trespasses. He's canceled our debt. He's brought us into the kingdom of the beloved, you know, by taking us out of the kingdom, the domain of darkness. And uh, he's, he's uh, calls us sons now. He's redeemed us. I mean, there's 220, 219 some odd things that have happened in this great transaction. All of that is from the riches of his grace. And just when we think we've talked enough about the riches of his grace, all of a sudden we, we are, our eyes are open to some other profound truth that we had read over a hundred times, right? For instance, uh, this morning, uh, 10 o'clock this morning, I uh, was, was able to um, lead the services for uh, Rita Armstreet for her, for her memorial service today, for, for Brian Armstreet's mother, um, Daryl Armstreet's um, wife. Um, the kids, obviously, they're, they're Mimi, as they called her, their grandmother. But I shared a passage out of Mark chapter 4 where Jesus falls asleep in the boat. It's a passage I'd never used at a funeral service before. Jesus is asleep. A great storm comes up. The disciples are afraid, and they are trying to wake Jesus. Don't you care that we're about to die? I mean, where are you? And, and uh, they're just beside themselves with fear and anxiety here. And Jesus gets up. He just rebukes the wind and the waves. Remember, he says, shh, be still, peace, be still. Then he rebukes his disciples, and now their fear has changed. It's not a fear of the elements and a, uh, 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 just, you know, as being afraid. They're now, they have this reverential fear. That's all that's come over them. You know, who is this that the wind and the waves obey? I mean, they're, they're seeing Jesus differently now. They had already seen miracles. They'd already been a part of those things. They had seen some miraculous stuff already. But they're in a boat about to die with Jesus, and he just gets up and, shh, tells the weather to stop. They're seeing Jesus differently. And if that's not enough, I noticed a verse, and I think, uh, I can't remember which verse it is now, but in that passage of Mark chapter 4, right there at the end of that passage, there's something I had never noticed. I've preached this verse before, this chapter before, but never at a funeral context, and I never noticed that there were other boats with them also in the water. I've read through this, I can't tell you, just countless times I've read this gospel account in Mark chapter 4, Today, of all days, in fact, it was a couple days ago, actually, I, I noticed, um, I think I told Becky about it. I've never noticed this before. 
There were other boats with him. And you think, what's the big deal? Well, this is a piece of, this is a section of Scripture. This is a Bible verse that didn't just get put in there. I mean, nobody edited it and wrote it in between the lines. It's been there, but I had never seen it before. And in this situation, when we go through stuff, when we experience God the way these disciples did, think about the storm that they found themselves in. Guess who else was in that storm? The people in the other boats. They were there too. I never noticed. Sometimes when we're going through stuff, we don't notice the people around us, do we? We don't notice that other people are going through things too. And when God begins to work in us, we know that he's faithful and just. He will uh, complete that work in us. But do you know what he can also do? He can also affect those people in those boats around us. He can do that too. And how we respond to God, how we respond to pain and sorrow and agony and all these things, it's a testimony, it's a witness, and it can be an encouragement to people around us. I had never noticed this verse before. Hmm. It's something, isn't it? How Jesus uses his scripture because it's living and breathing. It's alive. But that's just, just another dimension of the riches of his grace. <laughs> he uses this word to instill in us a new truth about who he is, about how good he is. His grace, his mercy, it's inexhaustible. <laughs> it's inexhaustible. We know that everyone is not going to be saved. We know that sad reality, right? We know that the Bible speaks to that very definitively. But we know that the sacrifice that Jesus made is sufficient that it could, in fact, save everyone that's ever been created. And more, because it's that sufficient. His blood is that rich. His sacrifice is that good. And so for us, we see what First Peter tells us. And Peter tells us in First Peter 1, 18, 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, he says, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold. Again, this redemption, we're being bought. He didn't buy us with, with, um, with gold, with silver. He didn't use a coin to buy us, to purchase us. No, but we weren't, we weren't, we weren't bought with these perishable things from our futile way of life inherited from our forefathers. This futile way of life that we've inherited we were born in sin. We've inherited this sinful estate. But, he says in verse 19, and I know I say this a lot, but I love the buts of Scripture. I do. And you can giggle at that if you want to, but, but when you see a B-U-T, look before and after because I'm telling you, nine times out of ten, there is something rich that, that, that's there. So we were not redeemed with perishable things from this futility of life, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Again, going back to that Passover sacrifice and then the Levitical system of sacrifice and an unblemished, spotless lamb had to die. But that sacrifice from those animals over and over, year after year, they were incapable of doing away with sin completely. But we were bought with precious blood, the blood of Jesus Christ the Lamb. Amen? Hebrews 9, 12. And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. You see, the high priest would go once a year into the Holy of Holies, into that most holy place, to do the, the propitiating, to do the atoning, to do the sacrifice with the lamb and the scapegoat, and then driving them off covered in blood to, again, that symbolic gesture. But they had to do this over and over and over. And on top of that, there were other sacrifices that would take place at regular times throughout the years, always trying to cover over sin, but Jesus Christ paid for our sin debt in full. He has redeemed us. Amen? He has redeemed us. 
Which brings us to the sixth point, I believe. Reconciliation had to be achieved. Again, if we were going to be made right with God, we weren't going to make ourselves right with God. God had to do it for us. And so reconciliation, in order to be achieved, it's going to take God working. 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. There is one God and one mediator also between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Beloved, let me just say this, and I don't mean to be crass. And we, we're, we're of the Reformation for a reason because Romanism is incapable of saving. And I'm not saying this to be ugly, to be mean-spirited, just to be factual. No pope that has ever lived nor ever will live, should the Lord tarry, no pope will ever be able to mediate between us and God. Ever. And people can be upset about that fact, but that's what it is. It's fact. There's one mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. And pontiffs, right? Um, There's several other titles that popes use. They borrow from pagan Babylonianism. They borrow these pagan... Um, adulterating titles that should belong only to God and they attribute them to themselves as if they stand between God and they can, from the chair, out of the chair, demand and dictate law for people, for humanity. Give absolution of sin to humanity. That role has already been given to Jesus Christ and it's been bought and paid for with His own blood. No one has done what Jesus has done. And so if reconciliation is going to be made, it won't be through um, penance. It won't be through a rosary bead. It won't be through good works that Protestants try to engage in. We work out of our salvation, amen? Not for our salvation. Not for our salvation. That's different. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 and following. Verses 8 through 11. We read this. Romans, I'll give you a chance to turn there. This is... Several verses. Romans chapter 5, beginning at verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Can we pause there just for, for a moment? How many of you know someone that's, that speaks such things as, one day I'm going to get right with God? You ever known anybody that will say things like that? One day, I, one day I'll come to church when I can stop this and stop that. When, when I'm doing better, I'll, you know, then I'll you know, get right with God. Folks, you can't do that. That's, that's impossible. No one can be right with God. No one. Absolutely no one. It takes God doing something. And that's the, that's the reality here Paul makes in, uh, this, this is the truth Paul makes real to us in Romans 5 verse 8. God does this. While we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not once we were good enough, but because we would never be good enough. Much more than, he says in verse 9, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Folks, do you realize what we're saved from? Yeah, we're saved from hell. Yes, but it's not just that we're saved from hell. We're saved from God himself. His, his holiness, his pure brilliance, his pure perfection demands the other attributes to be fulfilled as well. And his wrath and vengeance against sin has to be satisfied. And he alone can satisfy that. And so, we're saved from the wrath of God through Jesus. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only this, but we also exult. This is a fancy Bible word, to exult. We would say exult. We rejoice exceedingly great, right? We exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. It's through Jesus 
through his blood that we are reconciled to God. Reconciliation is achieved only by Jesus Christ. Which brings us to 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. It speaks to this as well. These are all Passion Week verses. In the, in the, in the days ahead as we approach this coming Sunday, these will be good verses to, to spend some time with. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now, all these things are from God. Now, all these things are the things that he's talked about previously in this section of Scripture. All these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry, <clears throat> excuse me, the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. We are now ministers of the gospel. We're ambassadors of Christ, Paul says elsewhere. And we are ministers of reconciliation. Our mission as we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves, our mission is to make disciples. We're to be reconcilers, telling people how to be right with God. That's why we're here, amen? And we can do that at this job or that job or the other job or no job. We can do that working. We can do that playing. We can do that in retirement. We can do that in school. We can do it in, um, in after-school care. We can do it at CAFA, right, on Tuesdays. We can do it in homeschool. We can do it at the playground. We can do it 24 hours a day, seven days a week, every day of the week and twice on Sundays. We can do this. As we go, we are being ministers of reconciliation, but it's only achieved through Jesus. So, finally, we read in verse 20 and 21 of this passage. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. When's the last time you've begged somebody to be saved? Not that we save anybody. I'm not, not even trying to imply that. Not that we're trying to manipulate anyone. But do you see the urgency here? Do you, do you see just the, the tender urgency that, that Paul is imploring these Christians in Corinth? We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He wants them to be right with God. Do we desire folks to be saved this way? Oh, that it would be true of us, amen? Oh, that it would be true of us. Verse 21, we know this verse. He made him who knew no sin, the Father made the Son who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Amen? So finally, we see all of these things that Jesus has gone to the cross for. And there are many more. Um, Tyler reminded me when we were in Florida a few weeks back of an old book that Piper had written called uh, 50 Reasons Jesus Died or something along those lines. It's a good book. There's a couple others that are along the same line. Uh, and that one, that's actually a good book by Piper. I would be hesitant to recommend some of his newer things, but that's a, that's a good one. Um, that, that absolutely is. And he, he's got 50 reasons Christ died in that, in that book. We just looked at uh, six, I think, so far here. But 50 reasons. And there's countless other verses that talk about different nuances as to why Christ died. But all of these things would be moot had it not been for this final statement that I want us to make. Christ died. The death of Christ became real when the resurrection happened. Now, here's what I mean by that. First of all, know that the resurrection had to be witnessed. That's the final blank there, if you will. Do you realize that Christ could have died on that cross between those two thieves? And had it not been for the resurrection, he would have gone down in history as a great teacher, maybe a good moralist, 
or maybe, you know, a revolutionary who died rightfully between two other thieves. But behind the scenes, something was going on. And we see it kind of painted in the tapestry as you look at the Gospels all together, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known as the synoptics. They all look kind of from a similar standpoint. John's a little different. It takes a different vantage point, writing later than the other three, uh, filling in some, some gaps. And you, and you look at all four of them, and you, you come up with a, a, a beautiful tapestry of what's happening, not only on the cross, but you see the, you see the, the background to the tapestry. It's not just the cross here in the front, but there's a whole scenery behind the scenes, if you will, that's taken place. And part of that is this ideal of substitution. You remember that thief named Barabbas? Remember what the crowd was yelling? Give us Barabbas. We're going to talk about that a little bit this Sunday, but they're yelling for, for Jesus to take the place of Barabbas. Now, what they don't realize is that behind the scenes, things are working out exactly as God had intended the whole way. And the Bible doesn't tell us what happened to Barabbas other than he's released. Now, I would like to think that, that Barabbas is there at the crucifixion of Jesus. You know, I, I don't know, but in, in my feeble mind, I think that he's there and he takes in the full depth of what's happening. That this man in the middle died for him. Died for him. He substituted himself for him. And it may have looked like the crowd was responsible, the religious leaders from, from Judaism were responsible Pilate was responsible. The jailers were responsible. Uh, whoever it might be, Siren, uh, um, uh, Simon, the Cyrene. Is that his name? Simon, I believe. The man uh, who carries, helps carry the cross. He's partly responsible for getting Jesus up there. The, you know, the, Barabbas may have been thinking all these things, but what's going on behind the scenes is that at just the right time, at the appointed time, the Lamb of God, the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world, gave his life for our sins. And I just, I, I, and this is just me, I, okay, so I, I'm not saying thus says the Lord, but I like to imagine Barabbas watching and seeing this take place, and I don't know. Maybe he did, maybe he got out of Dodge, and, and if I was him, that's probably what I would have done. Like, I'm getting out, I'm gone. I'm going to go and, you know, get as far away from this place as I possibly can. That's probably what I would have done, and he very well may have done it. We have no idea what happened, but I can't miss the significance of Christ being a substitute for this guilty man. Barabbas had rightly been accused and rightly been arrested. He was being charged with sedition, right, if, I, if memory serves. He's rightly guilty, and yet the guilty goes free, and the innocent is, 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 is the one who pays the debt. But no one would have known that had the resurrection not happened. Jesus would have been just another guy that died, just another death from a Roman um, torturous death, this execution of crucifixion. You read in Psalm 22, crucifixion is actually prophesied, uh, what, roughly a thousand years before it's even invented? <laughs> a, a roughly a thousand, I think it's 900 years, um, but nearly a thousand years before it's invented, David uh, pens crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And there was no crucifixion then, but perfectly speaks of the piercing of the hands and the feet and being hung um, up above the crowd. But the resurrection had to be witnessed. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. In this passage, I've preached the last several years out of this passage, different, different sections. I'm, I'm actually kind of struggling, Brock. I may, I may concede and give you this passage. Brock's going to be teaching soon, and he's wanting to teach out of 1 Corinthians 15. I think I'm going to go to Luke again Sunday. I, I've really been wrestling with this. So 
But in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54 and 55, we read this. But when this perishable, meaning this body, this perishable body, will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. And this is one of my brother Alan's favorite verses, if I remember right. <laughs> o death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Death is swallowed up. The resurrection has to be witnessed to demonstrate the victory of Jesus over death, thereby his victory over sin. Without the resurrection, he's just another religious fanatic that died between two other guys. But because of the resurrection, he proves that everything he had said prior to this event was true. He had prophesied even his death. He had prophesied even his resurrection three days later. It had been foretold, and Jesus himself agrees with all of those Old Testament passages, going back as far as Genesis 22 and seeing where a father, Abraham, sacrifices his only son whom he loved. The first mention of the word love in the Bible is about a father sacrificing a son, right? That's not a coincidence. That is divine. Uh, that's the divine hand of God pinning those words. And so, John eleven twenty five 25 tells us that Jesus says to her, now who is the her? Mary and Martha have been bickering, mainly Martha, right? Because Mary likes to sit at the feet of Jesus, and Martha liked to do things for Jesus. Not necessarily always from a bad place. She was the doer, and Mary soaked up every word of Jesus. That's the better thing, obviously. In fact, Jesus tells her this much. But here... He's coming about at the death of Lazarus, and he's waited, remember, so that Lazarus is not just dead, but he's good and dead. He's been in the grave, and he's been in there a number of days now, in fact, past the legal requirement of, of, of time so that he could be rightly and legally declared dead. All of that time has passed, and surely by this point of time, the body would stinketh. We see that even in, uh, woven into this story. And Jesus, right before he comes and calls forth Lazarus, he tells Martha that he himself, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. But we would never know this if it hadn't been for the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Amen? And so as we consider this week and moving to Sunday as we're talking more about the resurrection and the power of the resurrection, I want us to just be mindful and be... I don't mean contemplative in the mystical way, but I mean thoughtful, intentionally thoughtful about Christ and about His death and His resurrection and about the Scriptures we've looked at and others that the Lord may bring to mind. Or you may have a reading plan that you're doing for this Holy Week, this Passion Week. Look and think and dwell and ponder, meditate upon. And again, remember, biblical meditation is just that. You're meditating upon Scripture. You're not emptying your mind of things, but think about what Christ has done. And so... As we consider the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus, our precious Savior and Lord. All that He endured for our salvation. I pray that we would not only be mindful of that for ourselves, but that we would use what God has done for us as we one another together. As we encourage others to come to know Jesus. As we encourage those who are faint-hearted in their walk with Christ because of, of sin attributed to them or because of pain and suffering that they're dealing with, the loss of, of a mother like Brian is dealing with now, the loss of a spouse, the, the painful um, sickness that you may be undergoing or someone you care about may be undergoing, like Miss Laura 
uh, right now. As Mr. Mike sat all day for a surgery that got delayed and pushed and pushed and pushed until finally they got her in and, and were able to do things. And the doctor said that they were um, as sure as they could be that everything went fine. And that's a good thing to hear, right? We're sure that we got it 100%. Of course, doctors don't like to say 100%, so there's always a little but that usually follows those kind of statements. But they were certain that they had done as best the job as they could with the situation at hand and that Miss Laura was going to be good on the other side of this. And so we say praise God for that, right? But just think about all of those hours before that. You think about the stress and the, and the turmoil that goes on in the soul of someone because they care about somebody else. I pray that the death of Christ would spur us on to be considerate of those around us and to care and to be concerned to the, to, to, to the point of, 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 of agonizing over their salvation. <laughs> Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this night, for this ability we have to study your word together so freely. Father, it's, it's such a blessing. Tired as we may be from work and, and life and just hustle and bustle and, and all of the sudden things that happen some good and so oftentimes so many sudden things happen that are bad or, or at least just distracting but God you are sovereign over the su- sudden <laughs> you are sovereign over the sudden though it may seem like your hand is not moving you are painting a tapestry and you've already filled in the background information and now in front of our eyes the plan is coming to fruition Christ Jesus the lamb slain before the foundation of the world has taken care of our sin problem so I pray that we would be ever mindful. For those who do not know Christ Jesus as Savior and Lord, would they repent? Oh, God, draw them to yourself. Grant that they would repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would be saved. But may we who know you, oh God, salvifically, those of us who have been saved, may we, may we never tire of the story of the cross. But may you open our eyes afresh and anew every single moment as we look at this beautiful story and as we see the tapestry before us of the death of the Lamb. Oh, Father, thank you. Before Jesus, we...